0: Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in a copy of the scriptures to Jeremiah chapter 7. We'll be focusing on, the, we're looking at the whole chapter and the first three verses of chapter 8, uh, but just starting our reading this morning with the first seven verses. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 634. Jeremiah 7, a well-known passage of his sermon in the temple. Beloved Saints, this is your Savior's word to you this morning. Please give your attention to the reading of it. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Since the reading of God's word at this point, let us ask our God to meet us in and speak to us through his word. Most gracious Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are slow to understand. We are not by nature people of your word, And so we ask that you would be among us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would illumine our minds, and that you would give us ears to hear your most holy truth, we pray, through Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. title of the sermon is comfort. It's something we all crave. We crave it physically. We crave comfort emotionally. We crave it spiritually. There is an innate need in all of us to believe that our souls are okay, that we are at peace with God. We want to believe that when everything shakes out, When all is said and done, that there will be a place for us in heaven. And we spend time, don't we, convincing ourselves that we are good, or at least good enough. (laughs) We find people who we think are worse than us, and we focus on them to soothe our own consciences. We believe that God grades on a curve. And as long as we're somewhere in the middle of that big bell we're above average, if we're decent citizens, that we'll be okay. Inevitably, time wears away at our conscience, at our confidence that we're good, even good enough. We see that we fail others. We have to admit that we fail ourselves. And eventually we're forced to admit that we must also have failed God. And yet, we humans are nothing if not creative. And so we search for things that we can hold on to, our uh, get-into-heaven-free cards, if you will. And you know what I'm talking about, some anchor, something that you can identify, something that you can hold on to, to tie your hope to, so that when everything else starts to fade away, you can hold on to that as giving you the inside track to being okay with God. And at the end of the day, who is it that we are really trying to convince? It's usually ourselves. We tell ourselves lies in order to have some sense of comfort, some sense that we are okay, that that eternity is okay. In fact, the hardest lies that you will ever have to expose are the ones you tell yourself. Now, fortunately, we have Jeremiah, and he'll help do that for us in chapter 7. He preaches a sermon uh, in the temple, and the purpose of that sermon is to expose lies that God's people tell themselves in their pursuit of comfort, in their pursuit of peace. And you'll see that the lies we tell ourselves are no different than the lies God's people were telling themselves 3,000 years ago. They might differ slightly in form, but really not that much. Their substance remains the same. Jeremiah will give us three different lies we tell ourselves. One, the things we possess or experience prove that we have peace with God. The things we possess or experience prove that we have peace with God. Number two, the people we know give us an inside track with God and can get us into heaven on the friends and family plan. And the third lie we tell ourselves is that God wants sacrificial gifts and will reward us if we're willing to give them up. But the thing with lies is that they always disappoint. They always fail. Really what we're going to see as we look at Jeremiah 7 today is that God wants your whole heart and life and will not be fooled by empty acts of devotion. He wants your whole life, your whole heart, and he can't be fooled by these things that you try to use to fool yourself. But that's good because there's comfort at the end of that story as we'll see in this beautiful chapter this morning. Now... The reason God wanted Jeremiah to preach this sermon at the temple, not just somewhere else, but at the temple, was because the temple was the problem. And not the temple per se, but what the people thought possessing the temple meant. The temple was the center of worship in Israel, it was where they, they came and they gathered to worship God. It's where God made his presence known. He said he dwelt in the temple. And so over time, the people came to believe that they were safe, that they were okay with God because of what they possessed, because they had the temple. God lives with us. He's one of us. We're okay. We have the temple. It's all good. And so in verse 12, God says, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people. Now, Shiloh is where God first dwelt in the land, where they set the tabernacle up before the temple was built. But over time, God's people became so complacent, so comfortable with their sin, that eventually Shiloh, as a town, became so corrupt that God demanded the temple be moved, the tabernacle be moved. And he's saying in Jeremiah, it's happening again. And I'm not afraid to take my temple away if you abuse it. Go ask Shiloh how that worked out for them. Now, it's easy to judge those in history, isn't it? It's easy to say something like, well, if I had the temple, I'd appreciate it. Or we could point to Roman Catholics who believe that because they possess the sacred ground of the Vatican where they believe Peter once ministered that they are above apostasy that they that God could never abandon them. We've probably all met people who think that because they're baptized they can't go to hell because they've been washed. It's easy to look at others and point out the lies they tell themselves, the confidence they place in things they possess or rituals they've had or experiences they've had. But are we Protestants free from such self-deception? Do not some of us convince ourselves that we possess a superior morality to others? We refrain from drinking or or dancing. We we light up Facebook with diatribes against the slipping morality of America. We pat ourselves on the back and say, I have a morality that I stand on. I stand up for what's what's good and I and I make sure people know it when they're sinners. For others it might be the experiences they possess. They've spoken in tongues. They've had visions. They feel like God speaks directly to them so they know they're okay. Would I, would I have this experience if I wasn't at peace with God? Now for some, and this might strike a little bit closer to home, it might be their theology. They can talk circles around others. They can point out the errors in other people's belief with ease. They can finally distinguish between homoousius and homoousius. They have the creeds and the catechisms memorized. So they know they must be okay because they know the truth. They possess the truth. You see, none of us are immune from trusting in the things we possess. And God says, you're fooling yourself. The second way we can take false comfort is in the people we know. The first is in the things we possess. The second is in the people we know. Look at what God says to Jeremiah in verse 16. As for you, Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. It's not that God never allows intercession. Moses interceded for Israel many times and successfully so. But there's a temptation to think that as long as we have someone praying, someone holy to look to, that we're okay. Some think it's Mary. After all, how could Jesus ever say no to his mom? Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox has a list of saints that you pray to for particular needs thinking that they'll intercede on your behalf, depending on what your need is. Some place their hope in their praying grandmother. God loves my grandma. She's praying for me. I'm good. Others might think that because they belong to a Christian family or they affiliate with a good church, that they are okay. At least one of the reasons that God forbids Jeremiah from interceding was because the people weren't sorry. They weren't seeking out intercession out of humility and brokenness. They saw the ministry of Jeremiah as a way to enable them to continue to indulge their sinfulness. Verse 9, sleeping around in adultery. Verse 6, oppressing the poor. Verse 9, again, avoiding God, going after other gods. And so God says, Jeremiah... Don't bother praying because I won't be listening. Because the faith of others can't save them. Their prayers won't save you. You yourself must deal with God. You can't place your hope in the people you know. But there's one more thing that people do, one more false comfort we seek, and it's in the sacrifices we make. The temptation for the Israelites was to say, okay, maybe not the temple, maybe not the prayer of the prophets, but at least we've got the altar. It's okay if we sin. We can just offer a sacrifice and call it good. They thought that the sacrificial system was sort of a pay-as-you-sin system. The more sacrifices you could afford, the more fun you could have on the weekend. And we understand, don't we, how easy that temptation is. You feel guilty, so that offering check is a little bit bigger this week. You can make some extra money if you just compromise your integrity, but you vow, I'll give part of it to the church. You think that if you sacrifice something, God will ignore your sin. One of Israel's worst kings took this to an extreme. His name was Manasseh. And in 2 Kings 23, we're told that he offered his children. That's what verses 30 and 31 in Jeremiah 7 are talking about. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, they have built the high places to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command nor did come into my mind. Because they thought that the greater the sacrifice, the greater the freedom to indulge their sin. But that's not how sacrifice works. Sacrifices weren't there to encourage sin. They were there to give hope to people who were running from their sin, who were crushed by it. Sacrifices were God's provision for a sinner who could not save himself. They were not a free pass to pursue your sin. Look at verses 21 through 23. Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. In the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. He's saying, I don't want your sacrifices. I want you. I want your obedience. What's the difference between obeying and making a sacrifice? Because in sacrifices, we offer something else. In obedience, we offer ourselves. And that's what God wants. He doesn't want to substitute for you. He doesn't want a proxy. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. And that's the rub. That's what scares us. Because we want to keep God at a distance. We don't want to surrender all. We always want to try to figure out which is how much is enough. So we look for comfort in the things we possess in the people we know in the sacrifices we offer. But none of these can offer true comfort. So where is true comfort found? Where is it obtained? See, our biggest problem is that we think comfort is something we can achieve or find or steal and we can't. True comfort is a gift that only God can give. If you're going to discover true comfort, you're going to have to find it on God's terms, not your own. And that should both terrify and comfort you at the same time. It should terrify you because it means that all the games you play, all the lies you tell yourself are worthless and God sees through them. You can't place your hope in the things you possess and the people you know or the sacrifices you make. But you knew that already, didn't you? But it should comfort you to know these things because it means there is hope. There is a way to peace with God. Comfort is available for those who truly want it. But it's only available in Jesus Christ. You see, what God's people sometimes forget is all the gifts God gives point one place, and that's to Jesus. Yes, God gave his people the temple, but at its dedication, do you remember what Solomon prayed? He said this, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. If we would really want to see where God dwells, we'd have to see God come into this world by taking on flesh and blood, being born of a woman and walking among us. Jesus tells us he is the true temple. He is really where God dwells in fullness. If you want to be at peace with God, that's the temple you must possess not something made out of bricks and mortar, but Jesus Christ. And he can't be purchased. He can't be bought. He must do the purchasing. When it comes to spiritual matters, here's the reality. Every single one of us is penniless. We're broke. We don't have one thing to offer God. One thing that God needs. We have no leverage There's nothing we can say to Him or offer to Him to trade for forgiveness because forgiveness is more costly than you could ever imagine. But here's the unexpected twist. It can only be purchased through the sacrifice of a child, but not yours. If your forgiveness was to be purchased, God would have to offer His own child. And that wasn't a cheap way out for the father. Because in sending his son, the father was holding nothing back. It cost him everything. He was giving us himself. To buy your life back from judgment, he had to offer something at least as valuable as your life. It was costly beyond measure. But it was a price that he was willing to pay to give you comfort. And if you try to buy forgiveness, if you try to bribe God, to appease him, the death of Jesus benefits you nothing. You have to give up all attempts to purchase God's favor. You have to surrender. And when you do... You find the only one who can intercede for you. Not Moses, not Jeremiah, not your grandmother, no matter how wonderful she is. Because Jesus is able to do what none of them can do save those for whom he intercedes. As we heard during the declaration of pardon, Jeremiah, sorry, not Jeremiah, Hebrews 7. Jesus is able to save those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The reason his intercession is able to save us is because it's offered on the basis of what he was willing to do. He lived the life you can't live, and he did so on your behalf, and he suffered the judgment you deserved in your place. And so when he intercedes, he doesn't just say, They're trying hard. Have mercy. His intercession sounds something like this I suffered the judgment they deserve. Give them the reward that I deserve. God will never allow us to substitute for Jesus what we possess, whom we know, or what we offer. There's only one place comfort is found. There's only one road to peace. Lying to ourselves doesn't help things. It just makes things worse. And that's why every week we end at the Lord's Supper. It drives home this one simple fact, that it all comes down to Jesus and what you do with him. He is the only way we can find peace, the only way we can find comfort. So how do we possess Jesus? Or better yet, how do we come to be possessed by Jesus? Jesus. Because he doesn't need your money or your sacrifices. He can't be bought. He doesn't submit to your religious experience. He's not dazzled by your church attendance. He's not bound by your dreams or visions. He's not impressed by how, more, how much more moral you are than your neighbor down the street. He doesn't care if you can recite the Bible if your heart is far from him. There's only one thing Jesus wants from you everything. He wants your life. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants you to grieve over and hate your sin. He wants you to place your hope, all of it, in what Jesus has done and not the things you possess, the people you know, or the sacrifices you make. He just wants you to completely surrender. Because the only gift that God accepts is you. But it's something we can all afford. Don't play games. God's not fooled by the lies you tell yourself. He knows your thoughts, He knows your heart, He knows you. And that should be a comfort. Because it means you don't need to be good enough. You don't need to be wealthy enough. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't need to make everything right. You just need to let go and turn to Him. Look at verse 3 Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Turn to me. Repent. Again, this is why the Lord has us end at the supper. Because it not only calls us to see that Jesus is our only hope, but to examine our hearts and our minds and turn from our lies and the games we play and cling to Jesus alone. The Lord's Supper reminds us that it's not those who are perfect to whom the Lord grants comfort but those who are broken over their sin and look to him for forgiveness. So beloved, come and eat. Lay your heart, your life, and everything you are at the feet of your Lord. Rest in him and find true comfort. I'd like to ask Pastor Brian and the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, the Lord's Supper this morning. And please bow with me in prayer. Our precious Savior, we confess that we are fools. We know this because we fool ourselves. We believe our own lies. We think that we are safe because of the things we possess, the people we know, and the sacrifices we make. Such folly. Forgive us. We know our hope is found only where you dwell in fullness in Jesus Christ. His intercession is the only intercession that can help his sacrifice, the only one that matters. And so our only hope is in being possessed by him. Search us and know us, see our hearts, our inner thoughts. Teach us to grieve over our sin, to take every thought captive to your word, to surrender all that we might obtain you. For you are our only true comfort. Amen.